The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. We're going to start today in Mark chapter 12 as we're continuing exegetically through the book of Mark. Today we're focusing on verses 35 through 44. That will take us through the end of chapter 12. And here's what the scripture says. I have the amazing privilege to read to you now from God's word. Starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Once, when I was in high school, my dad told me that we needed to make a quick run to do an errand over at this place called the Fire Escape Coffee House, which was a Christian ministry where I I used to volunteer and help out a little bit. When I arrived, the lights were off and nothing was out of the ordinary, and I walked in, and it was just a normal gig. I was just going to go pick something up and take it out, and then all of a sudden, somebody hit the lights. Everyone jumped out from behind where they were hiding and said, Surprise! And it was a surprise birthday party for me. It wasn't even my birthday. I was shocked. I was stunned. I was not expecting that at all. All the signs were saying everything was normal. But I just didn't put the signs together. All the signs actually said that there's something going on. My dad never told me to go to the coffee house. When I got there, the door was unlocked. That should have said something about it. But, but then when I walked in, everything seemed normal. And then, surprise. This passage includes three short teachings that Jesus gives. And this is his conclusion of his ministry in the temple. Once he walks out the gates, there's no indication he ever walked back into the temple again. Jesus spoke these words because he was going to reveal the inaccurate perspective of his hearers. Jesus is going to show them just how far off their understanding is. All the clues are there, but they're missing something significant. So please join me as I pray that God would help us because today perhaps there's going to be a surprise moment for you. Let's pray. God, I ask that anything that we are missing, that this text has to reveal to us, Lord, you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our understanding. 
Lord, I pray that as this is going to be a challenging text for most, as I know it has been for me as I have studied it, God, I pray that you would allow that not to discourage us, but to encourage us and motivate us towards living a life completely sold out to Jesus Christ. God, we ask that as we study these words, these holy, blessed words of Scripture today, that you would please cause us to recognize their great value and that by your Spirit you would help us to live by them. Lord, we need your help. We are desperate. We are helpless without you. So please, Lord, work in us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our outline today will follow the outline that I believe is provided very plainly for us here in the text, and it will be structured together with the following three points. Point number one, the glorious Christ. Point number two, the greater condemnation. And point number three, the godly contribution. And for each of these three points, I'm going to offer three observations and then close them with an application. Let's begin with point number one, the glorious Christ. So far in chapter 12, Jesus has been in the process of being practically interrogated by the people in the temple. Over the past several weeks, we have seen Jesus being confronted by every last one of the ruling classes of the Jewish people. Yet, he has always answered their questions with divine wisdom and incomprehensible grace. He answered them flawlessly. But as Ralph Martin once said, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. After Jesus' previous response, Mark tells us in verse 34, quote, and after that, no one dared ask him any questions. They're done. Well, I give up. This is not the way to destroy Jesus. This was their intent, right? To destroy him. It's not working. Everybody's still on his side. After every one of the questions, Jesus proves his brilliance and his wisdom and his righteousness. But now... It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. He does not follow the pattern that's laid out before him in the questions that he was asked. Those people ask side issue questions, things like, what about marriage in heaven? What about taxes? And even when it was important stuff like the commandments, it still wasn't the central issue. None of these are unimportant, but they all miss the point. So Jesus, he cuts right through the haze and he asks directly about the identity of the Messiah, knowing full well that he is the Messiah, and knowing full well that they have rejected the notion that he is the Messiah. Observation number one, the scribes expected the Messiah to be David's son. This is clear from the text. Jesus says, wait a minute, you say that the Messiah is going to be the offspring or descendant or son of David. In verse 34, that's why Jesus says, how can the scribes say the Christ, which is the Messiah, is the son of David? It was a common teaching of the scribes. It was a common belief of all of the people of Israel at this time that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And one of the reasons for that comes from the text that Jonathan read for us earlier. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And wait, what's the next line? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who is this talking about? Clearly, it's the Messiah. Everyone agreed it's the Messiah, but he's going to be of the line of David and sitting on the throne of David and an everlasting king on the line of David. 
Now, this is a, a strange thing. They couldn't entirely understand how somebody could be a king forever. But even the blind beggar Bartimaeus, one who was uneducated, who was outside of society, who was separated from the intellectual elites, this man, blind Bartimaeus, understood that Jesus, or the Messiah rather, was going to be the descendant of David because he cried out back in chapter 10, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And when everyone tried to calm him down, he just cried out louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. So they expected that the Messiah would be from the line of David. Observation number two, David expected the Messiah to be his Lord. After establishing the common perspective of the scribes, Jesus is going to challenge it by quoting a very famous psalm, which is Psalm 10. Of all the verses that are quoted from the Old Testament in our New Testament, none is quoted more often than Psalm 110, and soon we will see why. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, in order to understand why this seems like a contradiction, we first have to step outside of our modern American perspectives. We have to put down our mindset and step into the shoes of a first century Jewish man or woman. It is theoretically possible that my son Asaph could grow up and be the president of the United States. Now, Mathematically, that's unlikely, but it is theoretically possible that he could be elevated over me. If I'm still alive and he's the president, he is officially my authority figure. Now, that is impossible in a monarchy like they had in the time of Christ or earlier on in the Old Testament. It is impossible in the ancient world for a son to ever rule over his father. As long as the father is alive, The son is subordinate. In English, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, 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 it's the same word. But in Hebrew, it says, Yahweh, speaking of God the Father, says to my Lord, my Adonai. And it would have been an incredibly inconceivable thing for the scribes to recognize David calling his offspring Adonai calling his great-grandchild Adonai. It makes no sense in their mind. How could he ever rise to the authority over David? Observation three. The scribes' expectations were far too small. I enjoy reading Sherlock Holmes. Most people that I know like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Since the time of their writings, most of the stories of Sherlock Holmes have never been out of print. Uh, They've been remade into television show after television show after movie after movie. They have been remade constantly because this guy, Sherlock Holmes, is like the prototypical superhero. He's a genius. He's one that we all wish we could be like. We wish that we could look at all the pieces and put them together. I just finished listening to an audio version of The Sign of Four. Sherlock, he's an absolute genius. But what's so amazing about his character is he doesn't actually have more information than anyone else. Everything is available. It's on the table. Everyone's looking at the same crime scene, but he is the one who's able to put all the pieces together. However, in the midst of his brilliance, there is an unmistakable arrogance that is always present in Sherlock Holmes. He will often become frustrated with those people around him that can't see what he thinks is obvious. Sherlock will even often treat his best friend, Dr. Watson, with contempt when he isn't able to unravel the mystery. 
In the book that I just finished, at one point he was frustrated with Dr. Watson and he lashed out at him saying, You should with these data be able to deduce some just inference. Get it right! Figure it out, Dr. Watson! That's my paraphrase. The scribes had all the data. They had all the information. It's all present. It's all clear. God had laid out all of the clues for them, but for the reason I mention this is because for all of the data that's there, they couldn't piece it together, and Jesus had all of that information together. Yet, Jesus is not like Sherlock Holmes. He doesn't present this information haughtily or arrogantly. He does so in a way that you and I never could. He does so without sin. He's not speaking to his best friend. He's speaking to his greatest foes, the men who will pursue him to death. And he asks this question with no malice. He is speaking to the most arrogant men alive, and yet he points out their doctrinal error with no sign of haughtiness. He's not tearing them down. He's not puffing himself up. He comes at this controversy flawlessly and sinlessly. I can't even imagine being able to come into a conversation and ask this question without a hint of sin in my heart. But also please notice that Jesus is not saying their belief about the Messiah is wrong. He's not saying their belief that he will be from the line of David is inaccurate. He's not saying they're inaccurate, but he's saying it's incomplete. The Messiah would be the son of David, but he's telling them, he's informing them, your expectations are far too small. You think he's going to be a king like David was a king. He'll expand the borders. He'll fill up the treasury. He's going to be a great king. He'll be powerful. Everyone will respect him. But as David said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah would also be David's Lord. Jesus is lovingly revealing to anyone who has an ear to hear that Jesus was not only the son of man, but he was also the son of God. And now Mark is pressing that truth home to us today. So here's our application for us. Perhaps you're like the scribes. Maybe you have thought the way that they think. You believe that there is a Messiah. His name is Jesus. Maybe you believe good things about Jesus. Maybe you think that he was a good man, a good teacher. Maybe you even believe that he died and rose again. Intellectually, you've got all the pieces. They're there. And you even structurally have functionally put them in the right order. But you must also believe that Jesus is the Son of God and all of the things that that implies. Because if you're missing that piece, the whole puzzle falls apart. He is your ruler by right of creation and he is your authority by right of ownership. You owe him your life and you owe him your loyalty whether you recognize it or not. So do not continue on like the scribes did, believing a half-truth about Jesus. See Christ for who he truly is. And if you are not saved today, I press this home to you saying, trust in Christ because he is your king, whether or not you know it. All the information is there. All the data is available. The word of God is clear. I just want to also say, if you do know Jesus Christ, this has severe implications for us. Because oftentimes we say that Jesus is our king. We say he is our Lord. And then we leave this building and we live like that's not true. Like we are our own commandante. We know that Jesus said many things that we are to follow. We also know that Julius Caesar created a lot of laws that people were supposed to obey. 
But we don't obey what Julius Caesar had to say. He's dead, and his kingdom is gone, and there is no authority over us. But when we treat Jesus' rule like that, like it is in the past, like it is over, we are deeply flawed in our understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. It is not past tense. It is current. It is present and forevermore. He is ruling over you, and he is ruling over me today. So by the power of the Spirit, I am pleading with you who know Christ today to live as though Jesus is your king right now and forevermore. Before we close today, I'm actually going to pray to that purpose, that God would open those who don't know Jesus Christ, that he would open your eyes to salvation. For those that do know Christ, that he would cause us to live in deeper commitment for him and with him. Let's move now to point number two, the greater condemnation. Verse 37 tells us that the crowds heard Jesus gladly. They were listening to Jesus, and they they were excited to hear what he had to say. But they didn't understand the answer any more than the scribes did. So why were they pleased? I think the answer is that they were delighted in seeing the scribes look foolish. They were happy that somebody finally put those guys in their place. They felt oppressed by these men, and now somebody had finally uncovered their ignorance. So now Jesus turns away from the scribes. And he looks directly to the crowds and speaks to them. And he said, starting in verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Observation number one. The scribes did not love God. Last Sunday, we read what happened when a scribe asked Jesus about what is the greatest commandment. Jesus informed him, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. However, Jesus' observation of the scribes did not reveal that they had a heart of love for God. Listen again how Jesus describes their prayer lives. He says, for a pretense... They make long prayers. For a pretense, they make long prayers. Prayer was considered then, and it should be considered now, one of the most important ways that we can express our love for God. It is the overflow of our hearts as we call out our praise to our sovereign Lord. It's the manner in which we express our deepest emotions and our struggles to our loving Father. It's a God-given gift for us to delight in his presence. We actually get to be in his presence as we pray. And it is the way that we ask our all-benevolent king for the things that we so desperately need because we know he cares. Prayer is significant. And they knew this as a culture. They understood it as a people. And the scribes, they were expert prayers. They loved to pray loudly, and they loved to pray publicly so everyone could hear the content of their conversations with God. They were outwardly good at praying. And then Jesus did what none of us could ever do. He saw right past their actions, and he saw into their motives. And he exposes their hearts to the people. And he explains their righteous deeds, they're all pretend. So he goes right at the most pious aspect of their life. And he focuses on that one, I believe, so he can summarize all of the rest. And he says, they're just pretend. Their prayers, they're just pretend. Even their prayers are completely false. They are done out of ungodly motives. 
There is no love for God in their hearts. Jesus has just declared that love for God is the greatest commandment. And now he has declared these scribes don't have that. That is the greatest commandment. They have broken it. Observation number two. The scribes did not love their neighbors. We've already established that the scribes did not love God, but Jesus also revealed that they did not have love for their neighbors. Once again, Jesus uses the most extreme aspect of their hypocrisy to make his point. He describes these men as people who, quote, devour widows' houses. And by this, Jesus means that the scribes would find loopholes in the law that would allow them to appropriate property from widows and claim it as their own. The Bible is never clear about the technical aspects of their greed, so we can't know for certain how it was they were justifying this. We don't know the legal process that they went through, although there are many different commentators who speculate how they got these houses to themselves. But I know that we could safely assume the crowds who were hearing Jesus would have been aware that this was the case. Jesus is not saying something that no one knew about. These people know that the scribes have absorbed wealth from the poor and from the widows. And now when Jesus says it, they would have been well aware of these injustices, but they had always done so in a way that would be justified under their interpretation of the law. In the time of Christ's earthly ministry, there was no group of people who was more vulnerable and in need of care than widows. That's why our New Testament is riddled with times where it will command us and as the church to care for widows in a very tangible way. But the scribes who knew the Old Testament better than anyone else did not view these women as opportunities to put someone else's needs above their own. Instead, they saw the desperate condition of these women as an opportunity for their own personal gain. I think even the most depraved in our society would look at the heart of these men who prey on the helpless and they would say, that is unacceptable. That is disgusting. That is evil. Why on earth would you think it's okay to take these women who are desperate and take what little they have left? I'm certain that it would have been an awkward and embarrassing moment to be a scribe in that conversation. Jesus is still in the temple courts. I'm sure there are still scribes who are there. He's just had a conversation with them. And the crowds were surely looking around, seeking to land their angry gaze on any nearby scribe. Observation number three. The scribes loved themselves. It's clear from the text that the scribes were outwardly religious. They pretended to love God, but underneath their piety was an inward love that ran deeper than anything else. It was an inward love for self. Listen again to the way Jesus describes these men and think of it through the lens of self-love. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Why? Because they're beautiful and showy. And they like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Their whole life centered around being recognized and honored by other people. They were used to always being treated well. I think James Edwards puts this really nicely and explains their privilege in this way in his commentary. He says, When a scribe walked down the street or passed through a marketplace, everyone was expected to rise before him. Such position and privilege fostered the desire to make an impression, to be greeted in the marketplace, and to have a place of honor at banquets. All they wanted was for people to think highly of them. These men were not respectable, but they, were, they expected to be respected. 
They were unworthy of honor, but they were honored by society almost everywhere they went. Even in the synagogue, the place of worship, they would walk in and they would walk past all those commoners and walk up to the dais and sit in the very front seat. Oftentimes, in these synagogues, they would be seated in such a way they were facing everyone else, looking out at all those regular Joes. These scribes desired to have honor. But Jesus says they will receive something, but it's not honor. Instead, from God, they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Now, when Jesus said this, he's not comparing their condemnation to the condemnation of other people. Rather, this word greater condemnation means abundant condemnation. It's going to be worse for them than if they hadn't sought this kind of honor. In other words, these scribes, they want honor, they want prestige, they want reputation, but whatever magnitude of glory they are able to achieve here in this lifetime, their condemnation will be far, far greater than that. So here's our application today. Beware that you do not have the heart of a scribe. What makes you worthy of God? What makes you worthy of his love? Earlier we sang a song, God delights in you. I want you to ask the question, is that actually true? Because many people say, yes, God delights in me. These scribes would have said, God delights in me. The criteria for that delight is all out of whack. What makes you worthy of God's love? If your answer is anything other than I don't deserve it, I am unworthy. I have nothing to offer God but my sin, and he gave me his righteousness through Jesus Christ. If your answer is different than that, then you are in grave danger of what Jesus calls here the greater condemnation. I guarantee that the scribes did not see themselves clearly. They did not see their own heart clearly before God. They did not recognize just how disgusting their sin truly was. But that's also true for you and I. What did Jesus speak about them? Yeah, they like to be seen well by other people. Yeah, their, their lives before God, they think they're right because they're, they're prayerful people. They don't love God and they don't love other people. Well, if those are the standards, you and I are filthy in comparison to God's standard. You and I have absolutely failed. We are just as sinful as they are. We just take on a different flavor of sin perhaps. So examine yourself. Consider what makes you think you can stand in God's presence. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God this morning. So now we move to point number three, the godly contribution. Look once again to verses 41 through 44. It says this, And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus has 
left the outer courts now of the temple. He has left the court of the Gentiles. He has gone into what is called the the court of the women. It's the farthest place a woman could go into the temple. And in this area, there were 13 different places to give offerings. We know from history that these offering bowls, they were like trumpets. They were called the shofars. They had a big opening on one end and they would come into a narrow tube that would go down into an offering box. And people love to pour those coins in and hear the clanking of the coins. I love that sound. I used to... um, Back when TD Bank had them, I would take my money down to the coin counting machine, and I would love to just pour in a little bit at a time, listen to that sound as it went in. I love to hear that sound. It's really a loud, clangy coin sound, right? Well, back in those days, other people would be very intrigued by the sound as somebody walked in with a big bag. They'd pour their money in, but there's more to it than that. There would also be an official there that would examine your gift before you placed it in. They would ask you, how much are you giving? They would look through your money to make sure that it's not counterfeit. And then they would actually, if we can understand most historical sources during this time, it's probable that they actually verbally said, this person is giving this much money, and then they would write down a notation of it for historical purposes. This led to a great deal of pride in giving. People would be interested not only in hearing how much other people gave, people were also interested in people hearing how much they gave. Somebody wanted somebody to proclaim their generosity. Kent Hughes describes the scene like this. He says, Have you ever sat in an airport or at a shopping mall and just watched people as you read your newspaper or had your coffee? Jesus was a people watcher. He was not only watching their actions, but he was watching their motives. Here we have a divine revelation. Neither the widow nor the rest of the people had any idea that they are being watched. So now, as all of this drama is taking place in the courtroom, Jesus is watching them and they are unaware. Observation number one. God is watching you. In 2005, the book Elf on the Shelf was published. Has anyone here ever heard of or read that book? A few. Okay. Well, thankfully, it's not super popular in this group. It's a storybook for children which explains how Santa Claus can be aware of who's naughty and who's nice. There's these little elves that are placed all over different people's houses that watch. And it's written by Carol uh, Abersold for the purpose of affording parents a mechanism to manipulate their children into obedience. Hey, kid, you better not do that anymore. Look, you see that elf up there? He's watching you. And you better do what I tell you or you're going to make the naughty list. Trust me. Do you see his little eyes going back and forth? Now, I am by no means attempting to use this text as a tool to guilt you into some kind of generosity or obedience. I think it's worth noting at this point that I don't even have any concept of who gives what in this congregation. For the sake of accountability and to avoid any temptation, I am intentionally unaware of the giving of this church. But to be faithful to the heart of the text, we are going to spend some time speaking about money here. This passage is informing us that all of our giving is done in the sight of God. Just as Christ was watching these people who are looking, uh, not aware that he's looking, so God is watching us every time we give. This has a two-edged meaning, though. It means that when we give out of our abundance and we give pretentiously, God despises those kinds of gifts. But it also shows that he loves a cheerful giver, that he does not overlook our giving. Observation number two, God doesn't need your money. If God did need your money, then Jesus wouldn't have chosen a bunch of fishermen to be his disciples. 
let's face it. If God was really interested in having the wealthiest people on his team, then none of us would be Christians right now. He would not have saved us. If I was the one, if I was picking out my dream team for Christianity, I would not put myself on the team. I wouldn't even be on the bench. God chose the weak out of this world. And most often, the poor out of this world. We are not the wealthiest. And when we talk about this, we should know that that's because God doesn't need our money and your wealth does not make you a greater candidate for salvation. If we have a misconception, though, about God and his heart, that he's a needy God, desperate for our gifts, then we are never going to give appropriately. That was the mistake being made by the people of Israel. Many rich people walked up to those shofars and they poured in large sums of money. And I'm sure the sound of those coins was was great clanking down that tube. Yet in God's economy, their gift was minuscule and their gift was insignificant. They had given out of their abundance. They were just scraping off the top of their wealth and handing God the leftovers. Now, I don't really feel like I need that. You can have that. Now, I think it would be wrong for us to assume, as some people do, that all of the wealthy givers were doing something sinful. Jesus never says that about them in this text. I've heard this passage preached in such a way that it condemns all who were giving large amounts. But Jesus doesn't do that. There were surely some who were devout Jews that were giving in the temple that day. I I like to think that there were. But Jesus is going to highlight this one particular giver. So remember, God does not need your money. But now we continue with observation number three. God wants your heart. There are some people that you can pick out of a crowd and you can immediately place them in a certain segment of society. You can set them apart as a particular group of people. If you walk through Penn Station, it will take you a fraction of a second to know that guy's a homeless guy, that guy's a homeless guy, that guy's a homeless guy. Man looks at the outward appearance. I'm not saying that you're judging them. I'm just saying it's reality. You can kind of tell who is who. Well, in this society, you could tell who a widow was. They had very little. They would have been very uh, not well kept. Their clothes probably would have been tattered. And Jesus looks across and he sees this is a poor widow woman. She was not part of the high society. She is not like those wealthy givers. She is the lowest rung of society. Widows were rarely ever even given the opportunity to earn wages. Remember the story of Ruth? She follows along and she picks up the grain that falls on the the edges of the fields. Well, normally that's how a widow would survive, by giving food to them in some way, shape, or form. Rarely did they actually have money, but she had two small coins. I actually own a little coin like this. I have one. I didn't bring it today, but sometime if you want to see it, come to my house. I'll show you these little coins. They're actually, the word for them in Hebrew is the word peeled. It's like they're so small, they were literally just peeled off the edge of that metal. They're so tiny, and as she dropped them in, they probably didn't even make a sound. No one would have noticed her. In fact, I bet the guy who was taking the notation debated on whether or not he should even waste the paper to write it down because the money she put in was not worth the ink or the paper he was writing on. This widow and her offering would have been overlooked by literally everyone except for Jesus. And Jesus is looking across and he sees her and sees that she has practically nothing to offer, but out of her helpless state, she gave sacrificially. Jesus made the point of calling his disciples to him. Hey, hey guys, come here. Guys, come here. Guys, look, I've been watching. Come look at this. And he says, do you see her? Her offering is greater than everyone else's. Now, if you believe that God needs your money, then you would think whoever gives the largest check 
is the greatest. But that's not what God has to say. In his economy, this is the greater offering. So here's my final application of the day. Jesus wants you. It would be really easy for me to take the next 10 minutes and to speak about the necessity of giving. I don't think it would actually be unfaithful for me to do that. In fact, I think I could faithfully preach from this text that we need to be faithful givers. After all, the New Testament is very clear that God's desire is that the church would grow by the giving, faithful giving of the people of God in the body. However, I don't actually think that's what this passage is really about. And I don't think it has that much to do with what you throw into the offering plate. To land the plane on that runway would fall far short of what Jesus is really getting at here. Perhaps, perhaps some of you do need to grow in your faithfulness to give financially. Maybe that's just a first step towards a greater commitment to Jesus. Maybe there are some here who just simply come at their giving in too much of an academic or economical manner, never giving to the point that they actually feel it. But in a far greater sense, this passage is speaking to every one of us in this room. It is revealing that God desires all of you. The entire book of Mark up to this point has been about the nature of radical discipleship. Of all the gospels, Mark is perhaps the most straightforward in its chronicling of Jesus speaking directly to his disciples about how to be a disciple. Mark puts less of a focus on sermons to the crowds like Matthew does. Matthew has these long sermons that he records. Luke has all these parables. Mark has relatively few, most of them just in chapter 4, all but one. And Mark does not record many conversations that Jesus had outside of the traveling circle of Jesus, like the book of John. He records things like conversation with Nicodemus or the woman at the well. He records all these outside conversations. But for the most part, Mark is teaching about Jesus' lessons to the disciples about being a disciple. He is primarily concerned with revealing to us the identity of the Messiah himself, but secondarily what it means to be a follower of that Messiah. And Jesus has gathered now his disciples to him, and he points out this woman, and he says, look at her. And I want to encourage you that we should draw near Jesus right now, and as a disciple, we should learn what he is teaching them right now. Please understand, the Lord does not intend you to hear this, and to go home today and to empty your bank account and come back next week and give every last penny you have to the church. That is not the application from this text. As one pastor once noted, that would actually just leave you destitute and you would become a burden to this church yourself. That's not the purpose of this text. The story of the widow is not telling us to simply give up all of our things. In fact, it is theoretically possible for you to go get all of your stuff, all of your money, and everything you have and give it here to the church... And your sacrifice could be potentially completely worthless before God. Consider the words of 1 Corinthians 13.3. It says, if I give all that I have, if I give all that I have, nothing, none of us have ever done anything this extreme. If I give all that I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. To view this passage simply in terms of finances would just be too simplistic. I believe this woman is is being contrasted here with the scribes. I have told you twice, the first two applications, do not be like the scribes. Do not be like the scribes. And now God is going to, through this passage, contrast this woman's heart with theirs. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbors. But this unnamed widow woman gave a gift that revealed she did love. These gifts were given to God, but they were 
given out to the people who needed. Now we know that she did not give begrudgingly because if she had, Jesus would have recognized that in her heart. He knows everything about her. He knows these are her last two coins. The last words of this chapter say, she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This woman truly seemed to understand what Jesus taught the disciples back in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what's my point? Why drag this on? Why push this any further? Here's why. Because in Mark chapter 12, Jesus stops short of giving the disciples the motive to give. He stops short of telling them, why do you give this way? He's giving them a lesson that won't come to fruition until later in their ministry. And if I don't jump forward a little bit in the story, then this entire section will become nothing more than a glorified elf on the shelf. And I do not want that. If you are simply guilted into giving more of your time or talents or treasure, then your guilt will quickly fade away. Or if today all I can do is rally you together and become some kind of motivational speaker and tell you, yeah, just do a little bit more, then that will quickly fade away as well. And the result will be short-lived and there will be nothing more than external religion like the scribes. So let me point you to the real reason why we should be completely sold out to God like this widow woman was. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He is the treasure of the universe. This is the pearl of great price, the person of Jesus. That alone should garner our respect and our obedience. But the Bible goes further than that. He was not just the son of God. He also became the son of man, born under the law, born in human flesh, being tempted in every way like you and I are, yet without sin. I like how Joshua Harris puts it. He calls him God with a belly button. The treasure of heaven left his throne where he had been worshipped by angels. Glory that we cannot imagine to come travel this earth surrounded by sinners that he created who would not love him but mock him and treat him with scorn. But that perfect holy God-man came to earth with a plan. And that plan was to die. And every step that he ever took in his earthly life was an intentional part of the divine plan that would crush the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself, by the hand of sinful men. And on the third day, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and justifying God's people. Jesus gave all he had. He's saying, look at this woman who gave what she had. Look at those two coins. Why are those two, those two coins of any value? Because Jesus' offering was valuable. Because he gave himself the treasure of heaven for us. You cannot outgive God. Jesus is the greatest treasure of the universe. And he was laid down for his people. Abraham Kuyper was absolutely right when he said, There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So brothers and sisters, I want you to take inventory of your life. Are there areas of your life, your finances, your time, your talents, your treasures over which you contradict God, over which you contradict Christ, and you say, no, wait a minute, that's mine. I'm holding on to that one. Whatever that thing is, whatever that stuff is, I am calling you, open your hands like that widow woman and let them, like those two coins, drop into the hands of the Lord. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So with a heart of thanksgiving, pray what we sang earlier. 
Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Can you really say, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Oh, God, our Father, we come before you today recognizing that every one of us is guilty. Lord, if your standard is to live completely for you, to give all of ourself over to you, to be completely sold out for Christ, to be 100% recognizing that this is no longer my life, that I don't live this life as my own anymore, Lord, that it has been, I've been crucified with Christ. Lord, if, if that is the standard, we all daily fall short. And God, I pray that you would help us. God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that exemplifies what it means to be like this widow woman, sold out completely for you, recognizing that there is no hope aside from you, giving all that we have to you, our time, our treasure, our talent. God, please help us, because apart from you, we can do nothing, and we would just end up being like the scribes. God, I pray for anyone here who is currently uh, in a state of being unsaved. Lord, I thank you you've brought them here. Thank you by your spirit that you have providentially Uh, made it possible for them to come here and that you have directed their steps. Lord, I know that it is is no accident that you have brought them to this place. God, please, by your grace, I pray that you would break their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Please, I pray, Lord, that you would save them. Lord, this is your doing, not ours. And God, for those of us who are saved, who have been redeemed, who have been regenerated by your Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would please cause us not to grow weary in walking with you, that we would not lose our focus or attention, that we would not set the zeal that we have had before you up on a pedestal and see, I once was on fire for Christ, and let that be. God, please give us a zeal that does not burn out. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a a desire for evangelism. Give us a delight in our prayer. And Lord, I pray that you would give us joy in obedience. Once again, Lord, this is only something you can do. Please, Father, in our lives, we pray that you would reveal this. Let our church exemplify this. And Lord, I pray that you would even use that to bring many to your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.